University and KZSU. A lot of people when I came back asked me, how was it expecting this huge, huge change? And for me it was just an experience. And it was a really good experience. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. When I was a child, my friends and I would go on imaginary safaris to exotic-sounding countries. Fiji, Brazil, and of course Africa. We foraged for food, fought off natives, hunted some animals, and domesticated others. After all, what six-year-old boy didn't dream of having a pet tiger? I knew next to nothing about these places, especially Africa. To me, Africa was just a symbol for exoticism, filled with dancing natives and wild animals. As I grew up, these stereotypes were dispelled, but I realized that they had simply been replaced by other stereotypical images. Poverty, disease, and war. My simplistic feeling for Africa had switched over from one of wonder to one of pity. I recognized that much of what Africa suffered came from the West, with the slave trade and colonialism. But I couldn't help but think of Africa as one thing, downtrodden. Over the past few years, I've realized something else. This couldn't be farther from the truth. From KZSU Stanford, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm your host, Micah Craddy. Each week, we bring you stories of all kinds from the Stanford community that address a certain question or topic. This week on the program, Approaching Africa. We hear from people who have been to Africa, studied Africa, and who show us a very different continent than we see on the nightly news. Today's show is in three parts. First, a story on our media's limited and sensationalist coverage of Africa. Second, the experience of William Lowell Von Haney in a Zambian refugee camp, teaching of all things poetry. And third, a story about how African independence movements, especially in Ghana, influenced a young preacher and civil rights leader named Martin Luther King. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Stay with us. Radio, television, and film do a lot to shape our perception of things far from our everyday experience. This means that, for most of us, most of what we know about Africa comes through mass media. Not a terrible thing, maybe, but think about the kind of things you know about Africa, and the kinds of things you don't know. Chrissy Coxon and Stephanie Garcia began to wonder about what the mass media tells us and doesn't tell us about Africa. Africa, the heart of darkness, a mysterious place, carpeted in heavy jungle and dense savanna grasses. It moves to a thunderous beat of drums and battle cries. Its people are strong, simple, and completely foreign. They are racked by famine, disease, and conflict. Their way of life is utterly incomparable to our own, right? When you hear the word Africa, what do you think of? Genocide is occurring in Darfur. In Central Africa this weekend, more than 180 people were massacred at a United Nations refugee camp in Burundi. In Ivory Coast, government forces today launched an offensive against rebel troops who have occupied much of the north of the country since last month's failed coup attempt. Today on the continent of Africa, nearly 30 million people have the AIDS virus. High death rates, ethnic tensions, and a locust infestation. These headlines fail to portray the full reality of Africa. Mario Mendez and Fermi Okunlami are both students from Africa, currently studying at Stanford University. 
They discuss their feelings on American perceptions of Africa. My name is Mario Mendez uh, from Angola, Southwest Africa. So, just the term Africa is very general. Because <laughs> no, Africa, it is a continent, contrary to some people believe it is a continent and like people have different cultures and different societies and all of that. I'm Fermi Okamami. I'm from Nigeria, which for those of you that don't know, is in Western Africa. It's like in the Ivory Coast area. Um, when you see Africa in National Geographic and things like that, obviously there are places in Africa that are jungle and that are very, very rural and that have not been developed. There are also places in Africa that are very developed. Maybe not to the same extent that the United States is, but more so than some people think. Because, some, like I said, some people think there's just a bunch of huts and mud thatched huts roof all over the place or people running around with loincloths jumping on elephants, and that's not what it's like. Why do so many Americans cling to the notion of a savage, uncivilized Africa. Today, are we getting the wrong information? Or just not enough information? So how do you feel about representations of Africa in the U.S. media? Um, I think they only show the bad stuff. Um, it's very, like, this is, like, they only go into, like, a certain perspective. and. I think that's not really fair because there are other things to Africa than just like the violence that goes on, but I guess they're like only interested in what can go bad instead of things that go right. At least from like my experience, I just think that it's, it's a lot more than just wars and like starving people. You know, it's like you have culture, music, and you know, food all that stuff that it can that it's really interesting and you know all it takes is like for people to you know have an open mind so so they could like see it and appreciate it Bill Heath is a host for Africa Today a radio program broadcast on KPFA in Northern California the program focuses on a different issue related to Africa during each 30 minute segment Bill talks about the imbalance of Africa coverage in the US media and why he chooses radio as a medium to address that problem. There are lots of stories that, that, could, that could be focused on Africa in terms of non-disaster stories. The problem, I think, is, especially again by with, the, with the television media, is that the problem is it's not good pictures. War is great pictures. Uh, but when you're trying to flush out information regarding just sustainable development, uh, it's generally for talking heads. And now I'm happy that, again, the news is out there, but it's unfortunate that's the only type of news that is out there. And it will be most appreciative when the mainstream media in particular can start focusing on other issues with Africa. It's a familiar story, right? We hear it in our media all the time. Africa is troubled. Africa is fighting. 77% of people living in sub-Saharan Africa survive on less than $2 per day. All of this is true. The problems really do exist. Poverty has created a fundamental development barrier. Africa really does need help. Jeremy Weinstein is an assistant professor of political science at Stanford University who specializes in the political economy of development in Africa. He explains, Africa is, I think, one of the most fundamental and pressing moral concerns uh, for people in the world today. The idea that close to a billion people can live at a standard of living uh, that is so significantly below anything experienced in the developed world and much of the developing world for that matter, afflicted by disease without any defenses against epidemics, living in the midst of violence. Uh, this is something that with our wealth, our prosperity, our technological know-how is something that Americans and more broadly people across the globe should be concerned about addressing. But how can we translate that concern into effective action? How can we enlist aid without stripping Africans of their autonomy? People who spend their lives working for Africa recognize this difficulty. Matt and Laura Chico completed a cross-country trek from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco in order to raise money and awareness for issues affecting Africa. For 3,942 miles, Matt ran and Laura biked 
and together they raised $40,000 for the Red Cross Measles Initiative and the Rwandan Friends Peace House. Their success is a result of daily conversations about Africa with the random Americans they encountered along the way. People were really, for the most part, very receptive and interested in what we were doing. I think a number of people just thought, well, if they're running and riding across the country, then it must be a good cause, because they couldn't understand um, what would make two people do this. So they were immediately engaged. But getting Americans engaged wasn't the only challenge. For Laura, just figuring out how to talk about Africa was hard. Because of the skewed media sort of portrayals of Africa, I always felt like I was treading a line when I would tell people that we encountered in on our cross-country trip about what we were doing. Because talking about the violence and the poor health in Africa kind of felt like I was reinforcing people's images that were very superficial and, and filled with stereotypes. And what I wanted to do was focus on the positive things that people were doing, you know? But it was really tricky, and sometimes I felt like I didn't walk that line that well because people would then kind of latch on to the more negative things and often shake their heads sort of in a, in a compassionate pity kind of kind of um, reaction, which was from a good place in folks' hearts, but wasn't really what I wanted to evoke. You know, I wanted to evoke a respect for what people were doing there. Anyone who tries to talk about Africa walks the same line that Laura describes. With a constant flow of negative information from the media, negative stereotypes are tough to break. Any effort to combat this overwhelming trend requires two steps, eradicating stereotypes and providing positive information. Jennifer Kurz is an associate for outreach and mobilization at Interaction, the Washington, D.C.-based American Council for Voluntary International Action. She recommends a third step in this process, to show Americans that there are ways for them to contribute to progress not enough to show pictures of starving people without explaining here's what you can do um, because otherwise I think Americans just simply get overwhelmed by the amount of bad news they hear from overseas. With our world coming closer together there are opportunities to really help people in other places and so it's just really a matter of explaining what those opportunities are, whether it's fundraising or calling your senator or congress member. Um, and if we can do that and really show Americans that if they, if they do engage, it will make a difference, then um, what I found is that the reaction is absolutely amazing and they want to do more than, um, more than I had ever expected. This three-step approach focuses on adults who have already been flooded with a constant stream of negative information from the media all their lives. By adulthood, most Americans have already decided what issues and areas they will invest themselves in. America needs more, a way to expand the worldview of our society from an early age. Professor Jeremy Weinstein addresses this need. How do we start teaching about Africa early? But we need to be doing this in our elementary schools, in our middle schools, in our high schools. And it's not just Africa, right? I mean, we need to be talking about Afghanistan. We need to be talking about the Arab world. And we just don't have a social studies and history curriculum in middle and high schools that really teaches about the rest of the world. As the world becomes more globalized, we need to generate global citizens at an early age. As a step towards creating these global citizens, Weinstein emphasizes a complete understanding. He describes the view of Africa that he presents to his students. First, I want students to understand the diversity of the African continent. If you think about the way Africa is typically discussed in the United States, it's Africa is a country with a lot of problems, right? That was a quote that President Bush made at the beginning of his first administration. 
Africa does indeed have a lot of problems, but it's a lot of countries with a lot of different types of problems. And there are places and examples of progress. Uganda and Mozambique have grown faster in the last 10 years than almost any, any other country in the world. Mali and Senegal have made strides towards democratic change. South Africa has rewritten its constitution in a much more inclusive and equitable way than almost any other constitution in the world. And those stories of progressive change and hope are often lost. Africa is a continent endowed with a rich history, diverse cultures, and the same potential for change found all around the world. If America can begin to teach its children to recognize the dignity of Africa, will it not contribute to America's dignity as well? We know that citizens of Africa are suffering from an unjust portrayal of their homes and families. We know our media creates lasting impressions in the minds of our society by presenting issues within certain frameworks and never challenging us to think beyond that. We know that, even for change to take place on a personal level, usually requires extraordinary and extreme action by a few devoted people. We know that we must introduce a global approach in our schools to create new advocates and not new opponents of this globalizing trend. So what would a curriculum that generates global citizens actually look like? It would emphasize paying attention to Africa coverage in the mainstream media and actively critiquing that coverage in a classroom setting. To truly understand the problems of Africa and their causes, we must break down stereotypes by being aware of where they come from. We must show our children the good aspects of Africa, highlighting the culture and progress that aren't portrayed in the 6 o'clock news like successful democratization, economic growth, cultural perspectives, and success of non-governmental organizations. Our education should extend beyond national borders. A line on a map shouldn't be the limit of our understanding. What would you expect to find if you went to a Zambian refugee camp? William Lil Von Haney went to Mwange refugee camp and experienced some of what you would expect. Scenes of depra deprivation, stories of lost loved ones. But he also found a bit of himself and a bit of poetry. L'Afrique Ton climat nous a donné une bonne vie terrestre. Un continent massif au relief plat et monotone. Ta richesse du sol et du sous-sol nous a donné le développement des villes, des industries, même la, même la progression des États africains. Plusieurs pays du monde ont été dotés par la richesse d'un sol riche en okapi. Est-ce bien toi qui emportes le produit alimentaire Est-ce bien toi qui possèdes de nombreuses richesses naturelles, mais cette richesse est détournée par les dirigeants Oh l'Afrique, ta morale nous a éduqués, ton tradition nous a formés, ton histoire nous a éveillés. Oh l'Afrique, les berceaux de l'humanité, tu es bon comme le ciel, mais un continent longtemps dominé. C'est la raison pour laquelle tous les continents te maltraitent. Toi l'Afrique, le champ de bataille, toi l'Afrique, le champ de l'esclavagisme. C'est les Européens qui a transformé l'économie africaine. Voilà, aujourd'hui nous sommes des pauvres. Mes chers frères. 
et veillons pour combattre l'esclavagisme, la pauvreté, la propagation du sida et la malnutrition. Nous, nous disons merci. Mon nom est William Lowe Von Haney. Uh, I'm from Chicago, Illinois, Chicago proper. Uh, I'm 21 years old and I am a senior at Stanford majoring in sociology. I went, uh, I spent the summer between my sophomore and my junior year working uh, in Zambia with an organization called FORGE. I believe it stands for Facilitating Opportunities for Refugee Growth and Empowerment. I forgot what it meant a long time ago, so I think that's it. So we went to Zambia with about 10 students, um, two students from UCLA, eight from Stanford, and we worked in a refugee camp in the northeastern part of the country, working with uh, refugees from the Democratic Republic of Congo. We were providing life enrichment programming, um, educational opportunities, Mwangi, Mwangi refugee camp. Well, I mean, one of the things that I expected uh, and, and everybody expected me to expect it's like oh my god don't be shocked it's gonna be a lot of poor people it's gonna be a lot of yeah I mean everybody that, mo most of the people there are poor uh, minus a lot of the engineers and the electricians because they're the only people who have those specialized skills and so you know they got paid a lot to install solar panels in the computer lab or you know things like that um, it wasn't that shocking to be honest with you you know it was shocking at first just because we come from the states but I'm, honestly poverty here in the states is much more shocking you know because you walk down the street you see skyscraper nice house nice house bum nice house nice. and so it stands out more and so every house within the camp looked the same you know is mud brick straw roof in the story everybody ate the same thing it was you know like there's some fruit some sweet potatoes from time to time if you got lucky. Um, there's this dish called enshima, which is like, it's like flour mixed with water. It's, um, it's very similar. I forget the, the type of bread that they use uh, with Ethiopian food. So it's very similar to that. I guess like the purpose of it. It's tasted like water and flour. <laughs> but it, you know, you get used to it. You know? And so it's not, it's not that shocking to be there. A lot of people when I came back asked me like, how was it expecting this huge, huge change? And for me, it was just an experience. And it was a really good experience, you know? I expected all of the people to be very dejected and very demoralized. Man, I've never seen so many people smile that big. The refugees that we worked with, all, I think it's like 20,000 of them. I mean, we didn't work with all 20,000 of them. But the refugees that we worked with, they were happy, and they weren't happy because of the living situation, but they were happy to be alive. You know, my translator um, has by far the best smile I've ever seen in my life, and it was because he survived that, and like his faith in God was. I'm not religious, but you know, his faith in God was confirmed because he survived it, because he made it through. You know. You know, most of them ran from violence. Um, in fact, all of them, you know, as far as I know, ran from violence or fear of violence. Um, I heard a lot of stories just in terms of what people faced and what caused people to run. And just, it's, it's amazing what the violence did to them. You know, I know guys who, one, one of my guys, uh, one of my friends, I'm not gonna say his name, but one of my friends, he, um, his village was attacked and the only reason he survived is because he passed out. And he, like, you know, basically, basically, from what they, from what they told me, what, what rebels used to do is they used to surround villages, um, light the houses on fire, and then people that would get out of the houses, they'd shoot. So it'd be like, like a shooting game. And he passed out in his house. And like, you know, the fire fell around him. Uh, you know, he had some cuts and bruises. Um, and like he got up and he just, he left, you know? He was just like, okay, I'm gonna make the assumption that everybody in my family's dead. Like, and he left. Um, fortunately in Mwange, he found his brother. His brother ended up in Mwange and they found each other and two of the most amazing men I've ever met in my life. 
I think a lot of people take, I think a lot of people here take what we have for granted. Um, I know I do. I don't take everything for granted, but I take a lot of things for granted. Um, and so within that, within that sense, everybody that I worked with knew the value of everything that they had. And they took pleasure in sharing it with people, even though it was scarce. Or they took pleasure in sharing it with people because of the experience that it would give. And so there's, you know, I don't feel that kind of sense of community a lot within the States, just like on a general whole. But then again, that's 250, 300 million people that we're talking about. I feel like a lot of Americans in terms haven't been stripped of their homes. They haven't been stripped of their family. And so really we might not know what home really means or family really means. I mean, within the class, for example, um, it's just that everybody looked out for each other, you know? Like people, people would share food. Like, you know, you got these real tiny bananas no longer than like six inches, five inches. And like people would split them in half, even though it was the only thing they had to eat for the day. Like they split them in half, share them with people. There's always people helping each other out, always people loaning money, you know, like within the markets and stuff like that. But like without question, it was always understood that, that, that a suffering to one person would be a suffering to everybody else. I mean, I, I felt, I felt a little bit of guilt, like in time, you know. So there'd be times where, like, so basically, we we ate at this quote restaurant, you know. They served up the same thing that they would serve up anywhere else, and like I wouldn't always finish my food, and so I felt bad about not finishing my food. I felt bad when they cooked a lot of stuff for like a small group of people, and so just the idea of wasting food was really, really sucked. Um, and then there's just like. It's just, you know, it's everything down there is so cheap, like within the camp is really cheap. Right, so you could buy, you buy like 20 of those small bananas for less than 50 cents. Like, you know, and so like every day I just wanted to go buy like 70 bananas and just toss them out to the class, you know. But if you do that, you set this expecta expectation that it's gonna happen, you know. And so there were, you know, there were a couple of students who, who I got closer with, you know, so every once in a while I help them out. I wouldn't help them out with money, but I help them out with some food. I help them out, you know, just be like, hey, you know, take this, whatever. Keep that on the hush. We don't, you know, just because if, you know, if you do it for one person, you got to do it for everybody, kind of thing like that. I like to think that I build up self-esteem, and I like to think that I gave my students hope. But then I sit there and wonder, like, how can you give? students hope when they've come from the situations that they've come from you know some of my students have been raped some of my students have seen their sisters raped some of my students have seen their families killed in front of their faces and you sit there and you just wonder like what am I really doing my translator got picked up by the government because they thought he was a rebel they kept him in a prison for about I want to say about a month and typically the what he was telling me was he told me that, that in that prison, what they do is they, um, like, it's like, like a place for execution. And so they, um, they kill you within like six days, seven days. They woke him up every morning. They would hang him up by his arms and they'd beat him. And they'd, they'd search for like, supposedly, uh, I believe it's the Mai Mai is like part of like the, part of like the mystic warriors of the rebel forces and apparently according to according to him they have like tattoos that move all over the body that give them like mystic powers and, and whatnot and so the the government the you know the people working at the prison will wake him up every morning to see if they can find a tattoo finally they let him go and he was just like you know what i'm getting the hell out of here i'm running you know and got to got to zambia the only reason he survived is because um the guard that was there was from his same tribe. And what's interesting, what's interesting is, is the struggle of skin, the struggle of skin color and the struggle of, you know, um, I don't know just what skin color means. So I'm sitting in, I'm sitting in class one day and we're talking, we, we kind of got away from the lesson. We started talking about color. And one of the things, one of the things that people, one of the things that people say, they say Mazungu is a term for like white person foreigner, but typically white person. 
And uh, I got called Mzungu all the time. And, like my students were calling me Mzungu. And I was like, hold up, wait a minute. First of all, don't call me Mzungu because I'm your teacher. Second of all, I'm not white. People were like, for real? I was like, yeah, my mom's black. And like one of my students got up from the back of the class, walked up, shook my hand and hugged me. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, I mean, it's not that big of a deal, you know? But it's, it's, um, it's interesting to see all the different shades of brown and black um, and how those different shades of brown and black interact. And then to see the mixing of other cultures, right? Zambia, Lusaka looked like New York, like in terms of the mixing. I saw Chinese folk there, I saw Indian folks there, I saw American folks there, I saw like like Latin American folks, they use, you see everybody. It's the same kind of thing, you know? And like the further you get away from the main cities, the, the, the less diverse it becomes. And then you start getting into different tribes and different, different ethnic groups of people. Um, but it was, it was nice for me to be able to see those things and to be able to, and it's a very spiritual thing, like to be able to touch back with the motherland. You know? So I am six foot two, uh, real skinny, real pasty white, long blonde dreadlocks. I had a blonde afro last summer. Um, real funny looking. I got a scraggly blonde beard. I've never questioned my identity. From as early as five, like the, you know, it's the earliest back I can remember. I've been a black man, regard like regardless of my skin color. I've never questioned that. Like, what's interesting is I, I've never, I've never identified myself as mixed. Um, my father, my father's German American. My my mom is just black American. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know what the hell the mix is. Um, I mean, it's like she's not full black. She's mixed way, way down the line with some um, some Native American tribes, uh, some Spanish, whatever. But she's probably like 75%, 80% black, something like that. But I've never identified as mixed. I've always identified as a black man. My experience growing up was around black people, around colored people. Um, I went to a public school where there were maybe like five or six white students in a class of 70, 80. I went to high school with, with a bunch of black folks, color folks. Um, my family within the Chicago area was my black family. And so that's what I grew up knowing. My, my best friends growing up are black, or, are, you know, they're still my best friends, they're black. And it's just, it's, my experience has been that of a black man. Um, mind you, I haven't had to face like racial profiling or whatever, but I've gotten, you know, I've gotten similar, like people approach me with my locks, but having white skin, people approach me and give me about that. So it's it's a lot of parallels between my experience as a black man with white skin and like a black man with the rest of society. Um, so yeah, I've always uh, I've I've always identified as a black man, um, and so like I went to Zambia as a black man, like I came back as a black man. I mean, they treated, they treated me like a foreigner. I mean, you know, you see skin color and you, you know, nobody in the camp is white. I see maybe five white people a year, you know. One of my friends this summer went, a uh, black woman went this summer, and like, you know, people were like, oh my God, you're my sister, but you're American. Like, you know, it's not, it's not a matter of skin color, you know, it's a matter of where you're from, which I guess generates different kinds of behavior, different kinds of treatment. Everywhere you go, you can find some kind of person. You can find something that fits you, something that doesn't fit you, something that is right, something that is wrong. I don't know if a lot of people view the world as such. So I'm not going to say my view on the continent is different um, and the people within the continent is different, but my view on the world, I think, is a lot different from a lot of people. You know, It's like we function as an entity, but we function as one whole entity that's made up of 50 billion entities that's made up of another 50 billion entities, you know? So it's just like, it's a molecule working together. It's like an atom working together. We just, we make up one body, but every part to the body has its different stories, its different characteristics and whatnot. 
And the idea is that you don't treat the person or the, the entity differently because of its characteristics, rather you play off of its characteristics and you build. So what I was doing was I was there teaching uh, poetry and performance. Um, I went in with the goal, I went to the refugee camp with the goal of trying to help give people tools to help them grow spiritually and emotionally and to mature in that sense and to be able to give that gift to other people. It's difficult, it's difficult to like tell you what the quality of the writing was just because the language barrier. So the, the language barrier with, with the refugees is um, most of them speak Congolese Swahili. Um, well, all of them speak Swahili. And then in school they learn French and not many of them spoke French because not many of them received secondary education. And then beyond that, the, the percentage of people who speak English and who speak English really well is really small. So every most people most people in the class wrote in Swahili or wrote in um, in French. From what I could tell, from my, my I had a translator down there. We all had translators down there, and the construction of ideas and the point of what they were saying was incredible. I don't know how they expressed it, but the ideas that they were conveying were incredible. They talked a lot about just the struggle of refugees, just the struggle of being black, um, you know, the struggle of. It just conflict within themselves. They talk. I mean, they talked about the stuff that we talk about too. You know, love, education, politics, all kinds of things like that. So they caught. I mean, they covered everything that anybody else would cover. Um, just with the, the, you know, obviously a different perspective given where they've come from and given that they, you know, given that they don't have homes. And what's amazing to me is that that performance transcends language barriers, like the actual performance of a piece. Um, there were times where I was sitting there just listening to my students perform, watching my students perform. And they, um, I didn't know what the hell they were saying, but I felt it. You know, it was just one of those things like, okay, I, yeah, that's right. I, I don't even know what you're saying, but I got, you know what I mean? It's just, it's intonation, it's delivery. It's the same thing in performance. How somebody stands, how somebody moves their head, how somebody moves their mouth. Like you know when you're supposed to react and you know how you're supposed to react. And so my students ended up becoming really, really good performers. You know, they learned the basics, how to hold positions, how to use their voice, how to use volume, how to use intonation, how to use things like that. And they got really, really good at it. Um, one of the things that we did, we, we did a hip-hop concert, we did a rap concert, which is ridiculous. We did publicity, we put up posters. Um, from on, the, on this wall, the second row over, second picture down. It says, uh, Super Mwange Rap Concert. <laughs> like, people went out and did like performances within like crowds, like, so they're like, water holes where where women and children would come get their water to bathe or to cook or whatever so they come do performances there we sent out invitations we did all kinds we did all kinds of stuff to publicize the show and we got to the night of the show and what was really surprising to me was um everybody runs late everybody ran late in the camp all of the time so doors open at six o'clock and the show started at 6.30 and I didn't expect anybody to be there at 6 o'clock. I opened the doors at 6 o'clock, 200 people flood in. And like, the place got packed, 500, 600 people maybe. The seats I just wooden benches. It's probably 20 or 30 wooden benches going back and four rows of them. Like, there were kids sitting on, little kids sitting on the floor, you know, just, it, it was... And, and the, the students who were performing were really, really excited by it. And... Those guys put on a hell of a show. Those guys put on a hell of a show. I it's what I love about performance is that like you see a good performance and like the performers become possessed like just by like the performance gods or whatever you want to call them. And they handle their business. And like, you know, I did some stuff at the end and, and me and two of my students did we did uh, we did a song together. Let's see. 
So, from my people in the shy, Watu Wakongo, what we got right here is what we call Mausiano. Mausi, Katika Tunapata Mandaleo, Amani Nafuraha Janaleo Po Akeso. I think it's, uh, so it's like from my people, in, so it's like this, from the people of Chicago to the people in the Congo, what we have here is a collaboration. But yeah, and it was just, it was just amazing what we did. People walked away feeling amazing after that show, you know? Seeing the ability that poetry and that and that performance has to make people happy and just giving that kind of tool to people and knowing that that tool is available for everybody is something that's really powerful for me you know in our final story this week we turn to the experience of another american who went to africa to teach, but also to be taught. Fifty years ago, near the beginning of the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King went to Ghana, a country then just gaining its independence from Great Britain, and he found that Ghana had a lot to teach African Americans about their own struggle. Recently, we had the opportunity to speak with Professor Claiborne Carson, director of the Martin Luther King Papers Project at Stanford. He begins our story about the trip King took to Ghana in 1957 and how it affected him and the American Civil Rights Movement. Well, he was invited by Kwame Nkrumah, who became the first uh, president of, of Ghana and prime minister, I guess. Um, and he had... Uh, invited uh, King to come to the independence ceremony. Uh, this was in 1957. And King, along with other African-American leaders, uh, attended and was very impressed by it, uh, uh, inspired. In some ways, the, uh, I think the African struggle, when Africans succeeded in achieving independence uh, in Ghana and other countries, and sub-Saharan Africa, that spurred the African-American struggle. You know, the, the idea was that if Africans could be running countries, why are we still trying to get the right to vote? Well, Martin Luther King had always been um, very aware of the uh, African um, anti-colonial struggle, and he had always linked that struggle to the, uh, the movement in the United States. He saw the, them both as freedom struggles, and uh, he uh, felt that... Um, well, he, he understood that there, a lot of the inspiration for the African-American struggle came from the African continent, and uh, also many of the African leaders had drawn inspiration from people like Marcus Garvey and, and even Booker T. Washington had been a great influence. Uh, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois uh, was uh, a pioneering uh, Pan-African. Uh, he had been involved in the Pan-African movement for all of the 20th century. And of course, uh, Martin Luther King was very aware of, of Du Bois. So uh, that was uh, an essential part of his philosophy, that he, he saw these movements as interrelated. In 1957, Ghana threw off Great Britain's colonial rule. The new president, Kwame Nkrumah, invited Martin Luther King to be part of the independence celebration. King found the ceremony deeply moving, and the idea of African independence significant to the struggle at home. When he returned to Montgomery, he addressed his congregation with a sermon on his experiences in Ghana. Reading this sermon is Awele Amekiba, an actress who specializes in portraying and examining the United States Civil Rights Movement. And I want to take just a few more minutes as I close to say three or four things that this reminds me of, and things that it says to us. 
things that we must never forget as we ourselves find ourselves breaking a loose from an evil Egypt, trying to move through the wilderness toward the promised land of cultural integration. Ghana has something to say to us. It says to us first that the oppressor never voluntarily gives freedom to the oppressed. You have to work for it. And if Nkrumah and the people of the Gold Coast had not stood up persistently revolting against the system, it would still be a colony of the British Empire. Freedom is never given to anybody, for the oppressor has you in domination because he plans to keep you there, and he never voluntarily gives it up. And that is where the strong resistance comes. Privileged classes never give up their privileges without strong resistance. So the struggle of the 20th century is a struggle of people in that condition to try to better their lives, to try to gain basic human rights. And to some degree, that's what all the freedom struggles were about. It's, it's from going from being uh, nobody to be uh, to you know, being disregarded by those in power um, by having no uh, opportunities by having uh, no rights that a white person need respect um, by not really being citizens of whatever you happen to be living you know that's the fate of most um, Asian and African people until the 20th century as Professor Carson just said, a common understanding of class struggle arose on a global level in the 20th century. Ethnic and national freedom movements across the world shared a common thread in that they all were undertaken by people of the lower classes, demanding social and economic equality. In that way, the freedom struggles in Ghana and other parts of the colonized world had close ties with the civil rights movement in the United States. As the most visible figure of the Montgomery boycott in 1955, King played a key role motivating his congregation and the civil rights movement in the struggle for political power. This sermon, given just after he returned from Ghana to the United States, was no exception. So don't go out this morning with any illusions. Don't go back into your homes and around Montgomery thinking that the Montgomery City Commission and all of the other forces in the leadership of the South will eventually work out this thing for Negroes. It's going to work out. It's going to roll in on the wheels of inevitability. If we wait for it to work out, it will never be worked out. Freedom only comes through persistent revolt, through persistent agitation, through persistently rising up against the system of evil. The bus protest is just the beginning. Buses are integrated in Montgomery, but that is just the beginning. And don't just sit down and do nothing now because the buses are integrated. Because if you stop now, we will be in the dungeons of segregation and discrimination for another hundred years. And our children and our children's children will suffer all of the bondage that we have lived under for years. It never comes voluntarily. We've got to keep on keeping on in order to gain freedom. It never comes like that. It would be fortunate if the people in power had sense enough to go on and give up, but they don't do it like that. It is not done voluntarily, but it is done through the pressure, the pressure that comes about from people who are oppressed. King's words were prophetic. Direct resistance against unjust laws would soon be a cause championed, challenged, and cherished throughout the nation. And there's no question that the same resistance was happening in Africa and in places all over the world at the same time. What's so inspiring about listening to these speeches today is that the message is still so powerful. Nonviolent political action is just as relevant now as it was then. King touched on the power of nonviolence in his sermon. If there had not been a Gandhi in India with all his noble followers, India would have never been free. If there had not been an Nkrumah and his followers in Ghana, Ghana would still be a British colony. And if there had not been abolitionists in America, both Negro and white, we might still stand today in the dungeons of slavery. And then because there have been in every period, there are always those people in every period of human history who don't mind getting their necks cut off, who don't mind being persecuted and discriminated and kicked about because they know that freedom is never given out but it comes through the persistent and the continual agitation and revolt on the part of those who are caught in the system. Ghana teaches us that. It says to us another thing. It reminds us of the fact that a nation or a people can break a loose from oppression without violence. 
Nkrumah says in the first two pages of his autobiography, which was published on the 6th of March, a great book which you ought to read, he said that he had studied the special systems of social philosophers and he started studying the life of Gandhi and his techniques. And he said that in the beginning, he could not see how they could get a loose from a colonialism without armed revolt, without armies and ammunition rising up. Then he says, after he continued to study Gandhi and continued to study his technique, he came to see that the only way was through nonviolent positive action. And he called his program positive action. And it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? That here is a nation that is now free and it is free without rising up with arms and ammunition. It is free through nonviolent means. Because of that, the British Empire will not have the bitterness for Ghana that she has for China, so to speak. Because of that, when the British Empire leaves Ghana, she leaves with a different attitude than she would have left with if she had been driven out by armies. We've got to revolt in such a way that after revolt is over, we can live with people as brothers and as sisters. Our aim must never be to defeat them or humiliate them. Now, during the 20th century, we've had two major campaigns, one of them the anti-colonial struggle, and the other the more general struggle against, um, I guess what I would call the legal system of racial suppression. There's a similarity in those struggles that, um, that links us together. And many of the tactics, um, the development of both revolutionary tactics and nonviolent tactics are, are very similar in terms of the, uh, you know, when when Nkrumah was using, you know, positive resistance and and uh, uh, in the South African struggle, you know, they were they were influenced by Gandhi. Um, as similarly in the American struggle, the Gandhian influence as well as the influence of Bolshevism and. Uh, the idea of, of, of a revolutionary uh, struggle against um, uh, colonialism. I think both of the, all those currents, all those ideological and tactical um, discussions took place throughout the um, Pan-African world. While King was in Ghana, Etta Barnett interviewed him on the Ghanaian radio. It was just after the midnight independent celebrations on March 6, 1957. Here, King talks about the worldwide implications of Ghana's independence. According to King, later that night, the new Prime Minister, Kwame Nkrumah, remarked that Ghana would never 
be able to accept the American ideology of freedom and democracy fully until America settles its own internal racial strife. In the story of this one evening celebration in Accra, we see the overlap between the freedom movements in Africa and America. I think this event, the birth of this new nation, will give impetus to oppressed peoples all over the world. I think it will have worldwide implications and repercussions, not only for Asia and Africa, but also for America. As you well know, we have a problem in the Southland in America, and I think this freedom, the freedom and the birth of a new nation, will influence the situation there. This will become a sort of symbol for oppressed people all over the world. Just as in 1776, when America received its independence, a harbor of New York became a sort of beacon of hope for thousands of oppressed people of Europe. And just as when after the French Revolution, Paris became a beacon of hope for hundreds and thousands of common people, now Ghana will become a symbol of hope for hundreds and thousands of oppressed people all over the world, Africa and in Asia, and also oppressed peoples in other sections of the world as they struggle for freedom. King expressed that hope in his sermon as well, and Professor Carson reflects on what this sermon means for us today. On the night of the state ball, standing up talking with some people, Mordecai Johnson called my attention to the fact that Prime Minister Kwame Nkrumah was there dancing with the Duchess of Kent. And I said, isn't this something? Here is the one serf, the one slave, now dancing with the Lord on an equal plane. And that is done because there is no bitterness. These two nations will be able to live together and work together because the breaking of loose was through nonviolence and not through violence. The aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community. The aftermath of nonviolence is redemption. The aftermath of nonviolence is reconciliation. The aftermath of violence are emptiness and bitterness. This is the thing I'm concerned about. Let us fight passionately and unrelentingly for the goals of justice and peace. But let's be sure that our hands are clean in the struggle. Let us never fight with falsehood and violence and hate and malice, but always fight with love. So that when the day comes that the walls of segregation have completely crumbled in Montgomery, that we will be able to live with people as their brothers and sisters. Well, I, I think that um, one of the things that's true about the world in general is that we assume that, um, that the West has something to teach the rest of the world, um, but I think it's often the rest of the world that truly gets the message. That is, um, you know, what, uh, I, what Gandhi once said about Christianity, that uh, it would be, uh, you know, a nice religion and those in the West should try practicing it. You know, it's uh, you know a lot of a lot of Western ideal ideals are just that they're ideals um, that haven't been realized, and I think there's a complacency about that. You know, that that's the way the rest of the world looks at us. I mean, they they see through the pretensions about democracy and the way in which we have one of the lowest rates of political participation in the world in this country. Um, many countries have a much higher rate of, of participation and, and in many cases the laws in this country are specifically designed to encourage or discourage uh, participation. Uh, so we have a long way to go to, to realize the promise of democracy and I think the rest of the world might point the way. We don't often think of Africa as exercising its influence on the United States. But if King's sermon is any evidence, we owe Africa a great deal. The struggles of Ghana and other African countries for independence undoubtedly became part of the global struggle against class oppression, a struggle that would inspire King and other civil rights activists to lead the United States into a new era. Today's program was produced by Jonah Willingens, the director of the Stanford Storytelling Project, and myself. 
and it was ably engineered by Bonnie Swift. Thanks to Chrissy Coxon and Stephanie Garcia for their story on the media's portrayal of Africa. Thanks also to Bonnie Swift, Rachel Hamburg, Charlie Minst, and Awele Amikiba for their work on the Martin Luther King story. And special thanks to Bob Smith for his help in the recording studio. Original music for the story on Vaughn in the Zambian refugee camp was created by Grant Newsom. You also heard Kissing Johnny and music recorded in Midawe, Tanzania by Shira Shane. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford Continuing Studies, the Program in Oral Communication, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank Fenwick and West for their generous underwriting support. Remember that you can find a podcast podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. Tune in next week, same place, same time, for You Are What You Eat. We'll be telling stories about all the things you didn't know about food, where your dinner came from, the policies that shape your your choices, and the power of a Twinkie. For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Micah Craddy. 